0: I have so much I want to say. Um, I have been digging into this, and I've got about 20 pages of notes at this point, so I had to cut this down to nine. We're going to try to get through this. So here's the deal. I am going to be covering a lot of ground this morning, and I realize some of you are note-takers, and you may not be able to keep up, and that's okay. I've made an extra copy of my notes back there on the table. If you want my notes, you can take them home with you, so... One way or another, we'll make sure you got the information in your hand if you want it to look back to. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. I thank you for your people. God, I ask that the words that are spoken today from this pulpit, Lord, would encourage your people, they would strengthen your people, and they would equip your people for works of ministry. You have said that our jobs as pastors is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And God, I ask that today does just that. I thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Alright, Psalm 19, if you want to turn there with me. More than 20 years ago as a college undergrad studying the natural sciences, this psalm drew my attention. It's kind of a Psalm 119 in miniature. Psalm 119 is probably my favorite psalm, one of my favorite places in the scripture. So when I heard the scripture reading this morning it's a Psalm 119, I was, you know, quite glad. But Psalm 19 is kind of a Psalm 119 in condensed form. Okay, it's power-packed, it's got a lot of profound testimony about the Word of God itself. Um, If you want the big theological term that is bibliology, where the Bible talks about itself. And I pray the Lord will use it to galvanize you in your commitment to His Word. He certainly did that with me. It is indeed a strange time we live in when it comes to Scripture, no doubt. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, the Jews never questioned the inerrancy of Scripture. The early church never questioned the inerrancy of scripture all through the patristic era till roughly 590 AD. Christians didn't question the inerrancy of scripture throughout the medieval era, throughout the renaissance era. Christians didn't question the inerrancy of scripture until, which is what, um, Pastor Justin talked about this morning, until we got to the enlightenment. And what was the enlightenment? Basically, it was an era where we saw rationality, if you will, rationalism attempting to usurp the word of god human reason attempting to usurp over divine revelation human thought this is god's thought the special revelation of god divine revelation basically the enlightenment is where we see humans going well we're smarter than god god's word may say that but this is what i say and i know better basically it's it's not a leap forward in thinking friends it's a leap backward It's not progressive, it's regressive. It's going back to Genesis chapter 3. God said this, but I'm smarter. And that's what we saw. It got so bad in the seminaries of Germany that Billy Sunday finally quipped, if you turned hell upside down, it'd say made in Germany on the bottom of it. There's a reason he said it. But this liberal nonsense is actually quite new to church history. Throughout church history, all the way up to roughly the 18th century, Christians universally affirmed the inerrancy of Scripture. And yet today, the Word of God is under attack, and we need to be able to defend it. Jude verse 3 says, Beloved, while I was diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. Why? Because those Christians were scared to stand up and defend the faith. And many Christians are today, and they have lots of excuses for it, I don't want to have to defend the Bible because, well, then I'll look a little bit, you know, I'll look off-putting to the culture. People might get upset with me. I might not understand. I've got to take a kinder, softer, gentler side of Sears approach to, to Christianity. And that's nonsense. Your job, part of your job, proclaiming the gospel is also defending that gospel that you proclaim. I'm not saying for you to be shocking and for you to be crude in the way you do it, but you still need to do it. There's perhaps no brief section of scripture that gives us a clearer testimony to the truth of God's word than the psalm before us. Psalm 19. So let's read it. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day it utters speech. Night unto night it reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, its circuit to the other. There's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Man, the testimony of the Lord is sure. One more time, just in case you missed that. The testimony of the Lord is Sure. I'll get back to that. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I'll be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. This is the word of God. This is an inspired psalm of David. Its divine author of course is God the Holy Spirit. The theme of this psalm though is that God has revealed himself and his glory to all men. He has made himself known in two very different ways. First, in verses 1 to 6, he's revealed himself in his creation, we might say in his world. <coughs> in verses 7 to 14, He's revealed himself in his word. And we're going to see that one of these is greater than the other. They're not on par with one another. They're not equal to one another. Creation and science is not the 67th book of the Bible. And when I hear people say that, it makes me ill. And I work in science. He's revealed himself in a general sense through the world, he's revealed himself to all men in a general sense. Through His world, through His creation. That's why we call it His general revelation, right? The general revelation of God is His creation, science, the world, the universe. But He's also revealed Himself in a very special sense in His Word. In His Word, God has revealed Himself, and even His creation, in a much more detailed and thorough fashion. Which is why theology, that is what we can deduce God's Word, His special revelation. There is this general revelation that is what we can deduce about God from looking out at the world. We can deduce, obviously, that he's all powerful, that he's a creator, that he's divine, he's above us, he's transcendent. But there are other things that we do not deduce just by looking at creation. Those things must be revealed to us by God at his will through what we call his special revelation. It's more thorough. It's more complete. This is by far better than creation. Creation. Than all the things that we can see in nature. Nature is no substitute for God's Word. It will not give us the clarity about God that we will get from God's Word. And you know me, I'm a fan of science. But it's true. First, we have God revealing Himself in a nonverbal revelation. That's verses 1 through 6, general revelation. Second, we have his verbal revelation. There's the unwritten revelation, and there's the written revelation. There's a revelation without words, and there's a revelation in words. There's God revealing himself in two distinctly different and yet intertwined ways. So if we begin with the opening six verses, we get general revelation. God has clearly revealed himself by his universe and all that's in it. And the psalmist reinforces that. He wants us to know the heavens are continually telling us about the glory of God. All of creation does that. All of creation speaks of its creator. Sometimes it whispers and sometimes it screams, but it speaks of its creator. He wants us to know the heavens are continually telling us about the glory of God. And all of creation does that. But he picks that which is most obvious. It's the most obvious to every human who's ever lived. The heavens. The stars, the moon, the sun. The sun is the focal point of our planet's existence. That's how we continue to go on. Its light and its heat fuel our ecosystem day in and day out. We are eating today because of it. Day after day, it is declaring its knowledge of God. Night after night, His knowledge is... His character, His glory is being revealed in a language that no man can oppress or suppress or get away from. God doesn't even need words to do this kind of revealing. There's no words, there's no voice speaking, and yet this testimony has gone throughout all the earth. Everyone on the planet understands this about the heavens, whether they admit it or not they may say, yeah, I look up there, it looks like random chance accident. looks to me like we're just living in an uncreated universe, being unsustained by any governing power at all. They're lying. I can tell you that two ways. Number one, I've been there, I've experienced it. Number two, the much more authoritative way, by the way, God's Word says so. He doesn't even need speech. He's revealed himself in such a way, you can't get away from it. And one day, you'll stand without excuse. You may try. You may tell people that you don't know. I'm, not, I'm just not sure. I'm not convinced. God, I've got bad news for you. God has shown you so much evidence. He says, you're without excuse, and I have more bad news for you. He's the only one that can make that judgment. See, you'll harden your heart against that because you don't want there to be a God. Maybe your lifestyle is conflicting with God's word so much, you know if I admit there's a God, my lifestyle is going to have to change, and I don't want to do that. I love my sin. And so I will suppress the truth about the God I know so that I can hold on to the sin I love. Well, then you will stand without excuse. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. God's power and majesty in creation makes the atheist a fool. And that's why God's word says in Psalm 14, the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. He is not using pejorative measures to name call you. He is saying literally you are foolish if you say that you deny there's a God because you know in your heart of hearts there is. He's made his truth so obvious and so available that all men stand without excuse General revelation is enough to condemn every sinner to hell. Every one of them. And I've got news for you. Every person in this room is a sinner. And every person outside this room is a sinner. And God has given enough revelation of himself just through creation to condemn every man to hell. No one will stand there and say, oh, but only, if only. No, you knew. Romans chapter 1. 18 through 21. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18, says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Every unsaved man or woman does that. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They push it down. I don't want to have to face it. I'll push it down so I don't want to have to look at it. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, here it is, for God has shown it to them. Oh, I just didn't have enough evidence. No, you're a liar. God has clearly shown you enough evidence. You've just got a hard heart, and so you don't want to accept that that's enough evidence. No, I need more. And if you give someone whose heart's posture is that, more evidence, you know what they'll say? Well, I don't care about that, what about this? And you answer that question, they go, well, I don't care about that, what about this? What you are seeing is the two-step, the atheist two-step, that is actually showing how hard their heart is. They don't want more evidence. You give them more evidence, they just make more excuses. They're instead playing a game. The game is, I don't want to be accountable to God, and so I'll pretend he doesn't exist. But it's like my children pretending I don't exist. They can pretend all they want, but I'm there. And I'm bigger and stronger than they are. And if I want to make myself known... I have no trouble doing that. And God can do the same thing with you. The difference between my children and me and the difference between us and God is infinitely more so. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world. Okay, this has been going on since creation. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. Are you a creation? Answer, yes. Is that understood by you? Yes. Is it understood by the birds of the air? Yes. Is it understood by the horses and donkeys and cattle? Yes. Is there a reason Jesus could sit on a donkey that no man had ever sat on and it took him quite nicely into Jerusalem? Yes, because it understood who he was. And by the way, if you don't think that's miraculous, I double dog dare you. Go find a donkey no man's ever sat on and and climb on. (laughs) Take a video first, right? We're going to be able to see um, you know, America's Funniest Videos or something later. <laughs> you ain't going to be on him long. It's going to be fun to watch. And yet Jesus could sit on him and he could take him just placidly into Jerusalem. Why? He knew who that was. All creation, all the created things know who God is. And you're no different in that way. You know God is there and that he's made himself known being clearly understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, here it is, so that they are without excuse. You can make excuses. It's just not going to fly. They're not valid excuses. 21, because although they knew God, oh, they didn't really know God? No, the Bible says they knew God. Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. Oh, I know He's there, but I'm not going to give Him glory. I'm not going to give Him thanks. I'm not going to give Him praise. Because I love my sin. Or maybe I'm bitter against him. But for some reason, the God that I know, I have decided I am not going to glorify him. They did not glorify him, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And because of that, their foolish hearts were darkened. There is no excuse. God has given us his general revelation. And we all stand accountable to him because of that fact. That means all of humanity, all of it, stands condemned before a holy and righteous God who has made himself known. After seeing and declaring all the majesty of God in his creation, verses 1 through 6, and after noticing and noting the sublime nature of God's glory and all that he's made, the psalm tells us there's something even greater. There's something greater than the glory of all God's creation. There's something greater than the majesty of God's power over his created world. Something greater than God's providence over the sun, moon, and stars. What could possibly be greater than that? The glory, perfection, and majesty of his word. That's what's greater than that. This. Look, you know me. I am a man of science. I'm a man of microscopes and telescopes and test tubes, and I've spent years studying and teaching full time in this field. But I too, along with the psalmist, must readily declare there is something greater than all of science. There's something that supersedes it all, that transcends it all. Greater than the sun, moon, and stars. Greater than astronomy, biology, chemistry, physics. All of it together. What is it? It's the glory of God in His Word. His Word eclipses it all. His Word outshines His world. There are people that will tell you they love to study science because they love to learn more about God through His creation. I get that. I've spent more than half a lifetime doing that. But the truth is, one afternoon studying God's Word can give you truth and insight you can't get from a lifetime of studying His creation. One is a general revelation. It's foggy. It's cloudy. The other is special. It's very sharp. It's alive. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces you. It reads you. This is the only book on earth that when you read it, it reads you. It is alive and active. It is working. By the way, keep that in mind. When you're you're giving the gospel to your friends, you're like, it's doing no good. No, it is. You may not see it. They They may pretend it's not. I did that. Right? I want to pretend I'm hard and what the things that these guys are telling me aren't reaching, but they're piercing me to the soul. God's Word is so sharp, it can pierce to the soul. Keep giving it. Keep giving it. Keep spreading the Gospel. Keep explaining the truth of God's Word. Why? It is active. It's not just sitting on the sideline. Oh, it's not doing any good. It is doing something. You just can't see it. God's Word does not return to Him void. No, it accomplishes what He sets it out to do. That's the glory of God in His Word. Much of the trouble we see in evangelical church today springs directly out of holding to a low view of God's Word. And I'll be honest with you, I'm sure it's the same for you. It's sad to me to see, it's frustrating to me to see. There are people in the Christian community who so-called apologists, who are not apologists, who will call science the 67th book of the Bible. What a load of rubbish. Heterodoxical at best. Blood pressure getting too high. Look, science and creation serve as God's general revelation. They cannot be put on par with his special revelation. They cannot. you telling me the theologian knows more about creation than the scientist? Yes, in certain aspects, they do. There are things I've learned about creation that I learned through his word. The two can never be lumped together. They are not on par. They don't speak of God in the same manner. In fact, there are marked differences even with how God addresses them. Get to the end of my notes here. Get back to the gospel. Back to the gospel. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us God has spoken. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all scripture is God breathed. That is never said of his creation. In fact, it's just the opposite. His creation is talked about as needing redemption. It's broken. Uh, Romans chapter 8 tells us that. It's broken, it's waiting, it's redemption. Is the scripture ever talked about in that In that aspect, in that connotation? No. It's not broken. The Scripture is pure. The Scripture is perfect. The Scripture is able to be relied on. You can take and bet your eternity on the Scripture. You can't do that with creation. You can't do that with science. I have bad news for you. I don't care what science textbook you get. It needs to be updated. It is continuously being updated. There are things that I was told were for sure you can take it to the bank, bottom dollar, when I got my first degree in science. And by the time I got my second one, that had changed. And then by the time I started teaching, 2006, 2007, uh, no, these things though, we know that you can take that to the bank. It's not changing. We know that's true five years later. Hey, uh, we got this little note we think you should put in the textbooks because this needs to be updated. Give you one. Water doesn't just magically diffuse through cell membranes. What? Excuse me? That's what we were taught. Taught that our whole growing up, all my years in college. Nope. There's little channels in the, in the uh, cell membrane. They're just big enough for water to get through. They're called aquaporins. We need you guys to put that in your book. Okay. <laughs> make sure to make that change. No, science has to be updated. And what we know today, we may not know tomorrow. We may know that we're wrong tomorrow. That's the great thing about God's Word. It is not that way. It's perfect. It's pure, like gold that's purified seven times. Why does He say that? It's not just gold, it is pure gold. It's not just pure gold, it's the highest quality, been refined so much there is zero admixture in this. This is pure, it's perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. That's verse 7. Restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It is sure. Are we sure we can trust the Bible on this? Are we sure we can trust it in Genesis when it talks about creation? I mean, you know the scientists say, lots of guys say this is not true. I've got news for you. Their word is not sure. And I don't care how many PhDs are at the end of their name or how many white coats they wear in the week. They've been wrong before. And they'll be wrong again. And the testimony of the Lord is sure. You can take this word to the bank. Man's word. Can you trust man's word? You sure can't trust it inherently. You sure can't trust it infallibly. It's not sufficient. No, you can't. Why? Because it's man's word. And at best, man is unreliable. And at worst, he's trying to lie to you. But either of those makes you in a category much different from God. Christians have always believed that the Bible is not just a human book, it's a divine book. And that's what the Bible says about itself as well. The precepts of the Lord. Notice of the Lord is in every single line. It's the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, commandments of the Lord, fear of the Lord, judgments of the Lord. This is God's word, not just man's word. Of course, the skeptical say, well, the Bible is just a book written by men. How can you possibly trust it to be true? And do Christians believe that the Bible was written by men? Well, of course, we believe it was written by men. God used human authors to pen the scripture. So, yes, the scripture has a man component, if you will. No Christian denies that. Christians are not denying that the Bible was written down by men, by people. But the question is not whether the Bible was written by men. The question is whether the Bible was just written by men or whether it was divinely inspired. does it have the fingerprints of divinity on its pages. And the answer, by the way, is a resounding yes. It is not like any other book. The special revelation of God is not like any other book. I like Vodibachum books, but it's not like this book. Okay, I like lots of books. I'm a big reader. But they're not like this book. This book is alive and active. This book is sharper than a two-edged sword. This book pierces to divide between the soul and spirit. The joints and marrow. It is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Other books can't do that because this book is alive. How do we know it's not just written by men? By the way, I think it's always fun to ask Bible critics if they have that same kind of standard for every other book. It's just a book written by men. You can't trust it. Mm, Genius. How about that Darwin book? Was that a book written by men? Can you trust it? How about Richard Dawkins' book? How about your science textbook? Those just float down from the sky? Oh, but you trust them. So it's not really a thing if it's written by men. We don't trust it. It's more like, well, that's written by men. Same, they share my same biases, my same worldview, my same hatreds for Christ. And so, therefore, I'll trust it. Well, i got bad news for you. Philosophically, you're in a real shaky spot. You're engaging in what we like to call unargued philosophical bias. You believe him only because he thinks like you. In short, you've decided to live your life in a non-Christian echo chamber. Good job. Smart. Logical. It's not logical. I'm being sarcastic, obviously. Are there divine fingerprints in the Scriptures? Let me give you a few. First off, the Bible contains more than 600 historical prophecies that have been fulfilled exactly as predicted. Some of them hundreds and hundreds of years in advance. And by name... Here's one. Isaiah predicted around 700 B.C. that Israel would be taken captive by the Babylonian Empire. So what? Why was that such a big deal? The big deal was Babylon was not the world power at the time. Nineveh and Assyria were. Babylon had been so badly destroyed by Nineveh and Assyria that Nineveh and Assyria had salted the, basically gotten rid of Babylon from the face of the earth. No one had ever rebuilt after that. That's what Rome did to Carthage. Guess what happened to Carthage? Don't. No one had ever rebuilt after that. You know how long it took Babylon to rebuild? 38 years. They were some determined people. They rebuilt to the consternation of everyone, and then they captured Israel. If he would have given this prediction, if you'd have been in his day and he said, hey, Babylon's going to overtake you and take you captive, you'd have been like, that doesn't even make sense. It's like someone comes in here today and be like, you know, if they told us China was going to, You know, whoop us in a world war. You'd be like, oh, that makes sense, Alicia. They're pretty big. But if they came in and said, hey, Brazil's going to take you captive, like, I mean, Mardi Gras? Like that, the big, you know, Rio de Janeiro, the big, people like the, the, the volleyball people? Yeah, man. That doesn't even make sense. Well, that was what was going on. And yet it came to pass exactly as predicted. But it wasn't just that. He also said, by name, by the way, hey, Israel, in a hundred years you're gonna be taken captive, but about fifty years after that, there's gonna come a man named Cyrus. And God's gonna raise him up, and he's not gonna know God, but God is going to use him to send you back to your homeland and rebuild the temple. His name will be Cyrus. He'll be the king of Persia. That's very, very specific. I mean, this is not like some horoscope that you get at the, you know, the dollar store, okay? This is a very specific prophecy. By name, the man who had become the king of Persia and eventually caused them to go back. And guess what? He was right. 150 years in advance, by name. Daniel predicted in uh, chapter 8, around 543 BC, that's more than 200 years in advance, predicted that Alexander the Great would conquer the Persian Empire, but then would have his kingdom divided four ways after his death, rather than passing it on to his heirs. That is incredibly specific, and yet it came to pass exactly as prophesied. Josiah, the Jewish boy king, who helped bring Israel back to God, was predicted by name 300 years before he was born. Pretty good. Daniel predicted the very day and method that Jesus would enter Jerusalem before his crucifixion 500 years in advance. By the way, if you don't think that's a great miracle, like I said before, find a donkey that no man has ever sat on before and grab a hold. See how it comes out for you. No, there are things that the scripture has where it obviously shows itself to be divine. There are uh, scientific foreknowledge. There are things about science that the Bible got right thousands of years before we figured it out. In fact, in some ways, the Bible was right. And in some of those cases, we mocked and laughed at it. The unbelieving culture mocked and laughed at it and then found out, whoops, they're right. They're pretty good. Like the universe is expanding. That was laughed at. That was mocked. It couldn't be expanding. The universe expanding and fly apart. That's stupid. Yeah, yeah. Where you know where where Isaiah says that, that that God stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He continually spreads them out. Yeah, that's nonsense. That's dumb. Till nineteen twenty nine, in the nineteen hundreds, Edwin Hubble looks through the telescope, right, and goes, guys, guys, you, you're you're not going to believe this, but uh, heavens spreading out. Hey, you know when we got on board with that train? When Edwin Hubble finally said it. Oh, well, if he said it, then he must be right. Did that hold back astronomy? Uh, Yeah. It held back astronomy for thousands of years because we decided not to take God's word for it. And so we had all kinds of other contrivances in place. The earth is freely suspended in space. That was written in the book of Job. That's the oldest book in the Bible, most likely. 1,500 years B.C., the earth is freely suspended in space. And that was mocked at. The Greeks and Romans, no, Atlas is holding up the earth. We know that. Earth can't just be... Sitting out there in space, freely suspects That's nonsense. Look how hard it is. I'm serious. That was literally the argument. Scoffed at for centuries until it was finally proven true. The earth is rotating. We didn't know that until Copernicus, mid-1500s, more than 3,000 years after the Bible said it. Stars are too numerous for any man to count? That was scoffed at by the Greeks. A guy named Ptolemy went out counted 1,056 stars. He knew the earth was round. He says, well, there's 1,056 stars up here in the heavens that I can see. Eh, the other side of the earth where I can't see, there's probably about the same number. At, at the very most, there's 3,000 stars. Don't tell me they're too innumerable to count. Guess what we found out? Some of those stars he was looking at, yeah, those were entire galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars apiece. Guess who figured that out? 1608, Galileo. Galileo did prove the stars were innumerable. He was using this newfangled scientific device called a telescope. Hey, fellas, all those things we've been looking at are not really what we've been looking at. There are hundreds of other evidences of divine inspiration I could give. I literally could go on this topic all day, and you know I could, sadly. Bucketfuls of them. So let's just say it this way. The Bible is not like any other book. It does not give you good advice. It gives you God's wisdom. It's in a class all by itself. It is obviously not just a book written by men. It's pure. It's true. It's right altogether. And guess what? It's that big word that we hate to say. It's holy. It is set apart by God, for God, For his purposes. It is alive. It is active. It does not return to him void. It accomplishes what he sets it out to do. It is God's special revelation of himself to mankind. And we, God's people, should receive it as such. The end of the matter is not what science says about the matter. The end of the matter is not what the psychologist says about the matter. The end of the matter is what... God says about the matter. This is God's word. This is pure and true and holy and right altogether. It is true on everything it talks about. Every issue it touches, it is right. And we as God's people should receive it as that. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's trustworthy. That all the learning I can do in science or in logic... Or in whatever other field I want to spend my life, I cannot overturn your word. Your word is true on everything it touches, every topic that it touches. I thank you for that, Lord. God, let us be reminded that your word is the end-all, be-all on every matter. And if we want to know what wisdom is on any matter, we consult your word. It is not in competition with man. It's not even in the same class. Thank you for your word, Lord, that you have, you have said is above even all of your name, that you have said is settled in the heavens. Let us see it the same way, Lord. I thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.